People of God, let's continue together working our way through Mark's gospel, and we are in chapter 12, and we will begin reading at verse 13. Now, I'm taking a larger swath of material than ordinarily I might, but that's because there's a theme that holds it together, and I want us to see the theme. What might be lost in some detail, I think, will be gained in seeing the theme as we find it in the overall passage. Before reading, let's bow before the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we plead before Thee for the blessed work of the Holy Spirit, for His powerful effusion and work in our midst, that our hearts may be truly revived in the truth, that we may be more deeply committed to the authority of the Word of God, that in this present evil age, as by grace we understand those things that others do not, that we would be motivated to tell others about the Lord Jesus, the Savior of sinners. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that as we depend completely upon the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit who has given to us the divinely inspired, inerrant Word will also illumine our minds and this page that we may understand the truth and apply it to our everyday living, and that Christ might be exalted. Help us to magnify thy name, to be filled with a sense of the glory and wonder of what it is revealed in Scripture that we sinners have come to faith in Christ by sovereign grace alone. For those among us who do not know Christ, bring them to Christ, we pray. And for those, Father, that know the Lord Jesus, we pray that this congregation will grow in that grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we humbly pray. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, we begin with verse 13. This is the Word of the Lord. And they sent him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. 
There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God. You'll remember that in the prior text, we saw the Jewish leaders very, very angry with our Lord, questioning his authority. 
and this showed the barrenness of their lives. And this attitude that questions divine authority or overtly rebels against it continues in the passage that we have read this morning. However, there are contrasts as well, attitudes that contrast with the barrenness of those who oppose the authority of Jesus. And in this portion of Mark, sinners ask questions to challenge Jesus' authority, and in each case, he answers authoritatively. And so the first thing we see in this passage is Jesus the controversialist, and here we are going to look at those questions and his answers from those who opposed him. The context takes us all the way back to chapter 11, verse 28, however, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority to do, to do them? By what authority do you cleanse the temple? By what authority do you teach these things? And they continue to want to whittle away at the authority of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we also are called sometimes to be controversial. We are not called to be controversialists, to live in the, in the, the arena of controversy and stirring up strife. No, no, not at all. But we must not shrink from standing up boldly for the Word of God and for the gospel. And this is part of what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ. We have his example here in other parts of this gospel. And as we move to these questions, remember that Jesus authoritatively predicted their doom, and they hate him for it, and they want him dead. We first have the question about tribute. The Pharisees and the Herodians. Now notice, the Pharisees and the Herodians were enemies. The Pharisees and the Herodians were at loggerheads, and yet they were sent, probably from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, in order to attempt to, the text tells us in verse 13, to trap Jesus. So they have a common enemy. They both want him dead. And they want to trap him. And this is the typical word that is used in other contexts for trapping an animal. They are trying to chase him down. They want to trap our Lord. They are on the hunt for our Savior, and they begin with flattery. And so in verses 14 and 15, they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So if Jesus answers the question they have asked him, yes, then the patriots will be at, odd, at odds with him. If he answers, no, you should not pay the tribute, then they will use this as a basis for denouncing him and bringing him to death. This is what they were thinking. And so Jesus asks for this coin, specifically a denarius, and there would be found the emperor's image. And there would be the inscription in which the divine emperor would have been mentioned, the divinity of this emperor, which the Jews know is blasphemy. And then in verses 16 and 17, they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. 
Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, and they marveled at him. Now, of course, this this is the kernel of the Christian view of church and state, but let's follow the issue that is found here. Jesus points to their hypocrisy. Their hearts are barren. Their hearts are evil. And they do not really want to answer him to answer the question. They have no desire for an answer to the question except to trap him. They don't want to understand an answer to the question they have asked. And they have owned the coin, and they considered this coin to be blasphemous, and yet they possess it. They are in no position to criticize the Lord Jesus. The unholy coalition desiring to trap Jesus shows the bitterness of their hearts. These Pharisees who are formless, who are self-righteous, and thought they had the title to heaven by their privileges as if they had some kind of merit, they have no adequate view of their own sin, no adequate view of their hearts. They have never seen themselves in view of the holiness of God and the perfection of the law of God that would have driven them to this very Savior they are attempting to trap. They failed to recognize the plague of their hearts. And as I was thinking of this passage, I remembered a passage in J.C. Ryle in which Ryle says some wonderful things that I think we need to hear. Some people have no thought or feeling about their sins. The subject is one which hardly crosses their minds. They rise in the morning and go to bed at night. They eat and drink and sleep and work and get money and spend money and if they, as if they had no souls at all. They live on as if this world was the only thing worth thinking of. They leave religion to parsons and old men and women. Their consciences seem asleep if not dead. Of course, they never confess. Some people are too proud to acknowledge themselves sinners. Like the Pharisees of old, they flatter themselves that they are not as other men. They do not get drunk like some or swear like others or live profligate lives like others. They are moral and respectable. They perform the duties of their station. They attend church regularly. They are kind to the poor. What more would you have if they are not good people and going to heaven who can be saved? But as so habitual confession of sin, they do not see that they need it. It is all very well for wicked people, but not for them. Of course, when sin is really felt, sin will need to be confessed. That was the heart of the Pharisee. Is it someone's heart here today? You have not yet seen the plague of your own heart. You have not yet seen the depth of your own depravity and your need of the Redeemer. Well, they have not seen the plague of their hearts. And happily, happy indeed is the man, woman, or child who is driven out of self to Christ. Jesus' opponents are not, are not done, however, because next, sent evidently by the Jewish ruling council, is a cadre from the Sadducees. And they ask a question about the resurrection. The interesting thing about the Sadducees asking Jesus a question about 
the resurrection is that you know from the start they don't want an answer because they do not believe that there is a resurrection from the dead. They are the theological liberals of Judaism. They are the rationalists of Israel. And Mark points out in verse 18, the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, they do not believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees and Sadducees, who also are enemies of one another, now have a common enemy, the Lord Jesus Christ. They were the ruling class, and they had a vested interest in keeping things just as they were, and they held on to the Pentateuch only as sacred scripture, denying all of the prophets and what God had given after. And they come with a question about the resurrection, but it is disingenuous. They do not believe in this supernatural promise of the resurrection. They are hopeless liberals, just absolutely living hopeless lives, living only for what they can see and for what gain they think they can have and the power that they can hold. That is that for which they lived. And so they speak of leveret marriage. You have this this woman. And what Moses says is that if her husband dies, then the brother is to raise up seed to the brother. And this happened once, it happened twice, it happened three times, it happened seven times. Can't you see them just winking at each other, uh, saying to one another, we've got him now. Who could answer a question like that? They want to show Jesus' teaching to be absurd And behind their illusion is a denial of the life of man after the grave, denial of the resurrection, the existence of spirits and angels and all their liberal assumptions, and they would have all men to be hopeless the way they are and to join with them in their misery. And Jesus answers, you are in error because you do not know the Scriptures, nor do you understand, know the power of God. And so he actually points to the Pentateuch, which they claim to believe to be Scripture. You claim to believe the Pentateuch, and God declares himself to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. You do not understand the implications of the everlasting covenant. God's covenant promises would be null and void if they were shattered by death and if there were no resurrection in the last day. You were denying the true power and character of God. He's saying to them, you have never really seen God nor experienced yourself salvation in his name. And so very important for us to see is in verse 24, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? They are attacking the authority of Jesus What we need to see and understand is to deny Jesus' authority is to deny the authority of the Scriptures. Now, we'll make more of that when we come to the end. But also, there's a great warning here that selective reading of Scripture and rejection of parts of the Bible in favor of other parts leads to deep error. Reject a doctrine that you just don't like and it affects your doctrine of God, and it will affect how you see the world, and it will affect how you live. 
Denial of the resurrection leads to a denial of the final judgment. Now, John Bunyan spoke of this tendency and this attitude in the Pilgrim's Progress when he spoke of the hill of error. And he wrote, very steep on the farthest side was this hill of error. And when Christian and Hopeful looked down, they saw at the bottom several men dashed all to pieces by a fall they had had from the top. So the doctrine and life of the Sadducees stands as a bleak warning and also a call to us, a warning not to neglect the Word of God, a call to be diligent in learning the Word of God. And you know, this is something that if you are neglecting, if you find yourself beginning to fall down that hill of error because you're not spending time in God's Word and it is affecting the way you live and the way you think and the way you judge things of this world, you can do something about that, Christian, right now. You can begin today to reverse that. I, I just ask you, do you not want treasure? What greater treasure than this word that we have been given by divine inspiration? Do you not want to, to fellowship with the living and true God? Where does he speak to you? Where does he send to, to whom does he write his love letter, if not the sacred scripture given to his own people? Do you not want to see Jesus? You find it here. Do you not want wisdom and discernment as you live life? This is the place that we go, as we saw in the 119th Psalm just this morning in our scripture reading. It's time for the church to wake up and to see that all things are to be filtered through an understanding of the Word of God and for us to recognize that He has elevated His Word above all His name and we need His Word, we need to steepen it, that life without the Word of God is absurd. Get into that Word. You can change this now, today, and love this Word as it should be loved. But then in the midst of these questions in which the authority of Jesus is... They're really attempting just to whittle away his authority and so that the, the crowds will no longer be enamored of him. And, but we have what appears to me to be a sincere question. And it comes in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. You see, it doesn't seem that he has been sent by the Sanhedrin. He's been hearing the debates, the discussion. And seeing that, he answered them well, that Jesus answered them well, asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, the scribal view of the commandments of the law is that there were 613 separate commands in the five books of Moses. He comes to Jesus and essentially he's saying, in view of those 613 commands, which is the most important? Who could answer such a question? Well, he asks for one, and Jesus gives him two. Jesus says to him, and this is the great Shema in Deuteronomy, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. God is one. 
He is three in one, as the scriptures make plain, but he is unlike the false gods of the heathen. Only he could choose to redeem his people in covenant love and to be their God. And so in Deuteronomy 6, this is connected with this call to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and also to love our neighbor as himself, because we cannot say, I love God and also hate my neighbor. If we really love God, then we will love our neighbor. And this man, Jesus says, is not far from the kingdom. And by saying this to him, undoubtedly, he is urging him by faith to enter into the kingdom. But I want you to notice the alls there in verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Perfect love toward God and toward man is called for by the law of God. The law shows a man his need of a perfect Savior. For who here could that man have said that he loved God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, with all of his strength? The main aim of the Christian faith is not to help you solve your problems. It is to tell you how you can be right with a holy God. And when we get this wrong in priorities, then the entire view of the gospel and the Christian faith is skewed and we become man-centered rather than God-centered. Now remember, to be almost saved is still to be lost. And this scribe is in the presence of love personified, the kingdom of God personified. And if he really understands the law, he will see his need of a savior. And I think it was Spurgeon who spoke of the sharp needle through which the thread of the gospel enters our hearts. The Lord is showing himself in view of the law, his need of himself, the Redeemer. Do you see that you are in need of the Redeemer? Do you see that in light of the perfections of the law of God, you need the Savior? Can you say, with all of my heart, I love God and my neighbor? No one here can say that. The Christian can say, I want to. The Christian can say, the time will come in which I will. And I long for that. But the Christian says, I have to rely upon the merit and righteousness of Jesus Christ, for I cannot fulfill the law's demands. I come to the one who has fulfilled those law's demands for me and paid the penalty when he sacrificed himself for sinners on the cross. Do you see that in your life? But then as Jesus continues to teach, we find that Jesus asks a question. And we read it in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, 
How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? You've been asking me questions, now I ask you. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he son? His son and the great throng heard him gladly. So our Savior quotes the 110th Psalm that David, by the Holy Spirit, spoke these inspired words describing the Son as his Lord. Now the scribes knew that the Messiah was the Son of David, but this was perplexing. How can the Lord say to the Lord, how can this be? And so Jesus is asking, whose Son is the Christ? In other words, He is saying essentially, whose son am I? And here the Lord gives a clue to his identity if they really want to know. That David's Lord is the son of God who came into the world, God in the flesh, to save sinners. Jesus is saying, reject me. And you reject the one to whom God spoke, calling him Lord in the 110th Psalm. God speaks to God. Of course, the Trinity is implicit in this. Notice also again, authority. Jesus asks them authoritatively, teaches them authoritatively, points to the word of which he is the divine author with authority. And so he says, the Holy Spirit declared, and he quotes the 110th Psalm, because the ultimate author of the Bible is God, the Holy Spirit. That is where the authority is found. Now, those are the questions. Those are the answers. And after these questions follows a warning about false teachers in verses 38 through 40. And I want to make a couple of brief comments about this, beginning at verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. These verses teach us that these false teachers fail to obey the greatest commandment. They were filled with self-love rather than the love of God and neighbor. Religious feelings, you know, can be the most deceitful of all, and they must be tested by Holy Scripture. Once again, the issue is fruit. They were not bearing good fruit, but bad fruit. A bad tree can only bear bad fruit. And we learn to turn from false teaching and false teachers as we would poison And then we come at verse 40, they will receive the greater condemnation. These who are teaching others, who are attempting to lead others, who were pointing others, but not to Christ and not his gospel. Thirdly, there's a last scene that says to us, God sees not as man sees. And it's here because there's a contrast. 
Jesus must have been in the court of the women. And can you hear the tinkle of the coins? Some of them perhaps pouring large purses into the offering box and others giving less. And then there's this woman who comes along. And she drops in two little coins. The coin is called a lepta, actually, in the Greek text. It's a lepta. It's a tiny little thing. Uh, The best they can do in translating here is it's a fraction of a penny. It's just a small little thing. And essentially, Jesus says, Peter, Andrew, James, John, come, let's look at this. This this woman, she she was giving this fraction of a penny, but this woman is giving all she had to live on out of love for God and man. Now, here's the heart that was a regenerate heart, obviously, that serves in accordance with the great commandment. And I think Mark includes this to show the contrast between her heart and the hearts of those who say they love God and man, but really hate, and it shows in their desire to kill the Son of God. She's not trying to draw attention to herself. She's not using religion for gain. And Jesus sees into her very heart, and her gift points ahead in this gospel to the offering that Jesus soon will make. Remember, we're in the last week of his life here in Mark. And this woman's loving sacrifice points ahead to the sacrifice that Jesus will make out of love for you, believer, out of love for you, fellow sinner, when he shed his blood on the cross for his people. This foreshadows the one who, though he was rich, yet for our sake was made poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Do you know him? To whom to know a right is to be made rich, lavishly rich, in the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to you, received by faith, in the blessed work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, in sanctifying you. Do you know the covering of Jesus' blood and righteousness? Do you know the work of the Spirit in your heart who regenerates and sanctifies? All because He went to the cross in absolute, complete, perfect love for God His Father and for those for whom He shed His blood. I think this is a remarkable passage. I think that as I studied the passage again, it exposed my heart. I think that it drove me once again by faith to the only Redeemer of God's elect. But I want to bring one final application that I also think is important. The great theme of this passage is the authority of Jesus Christ, which is questioned by these these religious leaders for nefarious reasons. 
And authority is also the great issue that we face today. And the question that we Christians should be asking when we're in the universities, when we're having, having discussions with others, when we see that the world around us wants to call evil good and good evil, we should ask the question, by what authority, by what standard do you believe that this is right or this is wrong or this is true or this is false? That's the great question. Christ's authority is seen in the complete Word of God, the Bible. When we read this book, it is the authority of God, the authority of Jesus Christ, spoken into my heart and into yours. So what happens when this authority is cast aside? Just this last week, I read an article in the Journal of Bioethics. And in that article, just to be brief, the unborn baby is treated as a pathogen. And this leads to seeing it all as a medical disease. Pregnancy was described as something akin to the measles. And so it could be removed by abortion. And the tendency in many arenas is toward antinatalism and toward treating human beings as anti-human. And this is just one of many examples of the moral insanity of our culture, a culture once deeply influenced by the Holy Scriptures, but now by suppression of the truth is becoming more and more bizarre even in sophisticated journals, like the Journal of Bioethics. Because there's no sense of a transcendent standard of truth and error, of right and wrong. Rene Pach was right when he said, with reason made autonomous, science atheistic, morality unregulated, and politics wholly pagan, Man, having transformed each of these domains into a new religion and ideology, to use the modern term, believes he has achieved complete freedom. Far from having escaped all authority, he has simply chosen another one characterized by his own pontiffs, fanaticism, and infallibility. The source is the same, people of God. The source is the same, always the same, no matter how it is expressed, it is the fallen human heart. It is original sin. It is the depravity of our nature, denying God's clear revelation. It is the voice of the serpent that continues to say, hath God really said? An autonomous reason in the guise of religion in this passage that we have read is leading to the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. And today, autonomous reason leads to the crucifixion of what God says is true and right and good. So is there no hope? Yes, there is hope. Men were fully responsible for their sinful deed, but God in counsel determined that his son would come and shed his blood for sinners 
He can bring us back to the truth because He is the truth. And for a sinner to return, the Holy Spirit must work on covering to sinners our desperate need. And that is why I plead with us in this congregation. I plead with us in this congregation to learn how to pray for that needed work of the Holy Spirit in our churches and in our land that also will result in influencing our culture. Because to paraphrase Horatius Bonner, by the way, that first hymn we sang was written by Horatius Bonner, the Scotch Presbyterian. To paraphrase Horatius Bonner, when the grave seems to lie open at the foot of the pulpit with dust in her bosom, we will see change. Pray that God will endue the preaching of the word with his power so that hearts are exposed and people still die and eternity still awaits them and pray that the Holy Spirit will reach their careless hearts by effectual calling and change them in His grace. That's the great need, and that is our hope. And people of God, awake to your strength as the church of God in prayer. I believe with all my heart that if we seek the Lord for the Spirit's work and for the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit, that He will answer us. Let's not cower in a corner. Let's get on our knees before the Lord and say, Lord, this is the need of the churches in our land. This is the need of our culture, of our society. Lord, thou hast done it before. Do it again. Amen.